0: Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We do pray, Lord, all glory be to Christ. As we go to your word now and we hear more about Christ, we want it to be so that Christ is lifted up in our minds, and our hearts, that we can testify truly with the words of the songs we've just sung, that it's all about Jesus Christ. And if we lose everything else but still have Christ, that's okay, because he is our life. Lord, you know that we can easily move away from that. So I pray that with this sermon, you'd bring us back, you'd bring us right back to where we need to be, centered on Christ, living for him and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thinking about today's passage, I was reminded this past week about a certain notorious incident that took place in the Kaposha household growing up. You see, we had a dog, a papillon named Jedediah when we called Jetty, or Jed for short. I don't know if you, or if you don't know what a papillon is, just imagine a long-haired chihuahua with a slightly longer snout, butterfly-shaped ears, and extra fluffy tail. And you've got a papillon. Anyways, Jetty was not a good dog. (laughs) He was cute, but he was also a depraved food-worshipping cur. And one day, we found Jetty limping around the house, staying off of his back right leg. And uh, my siblings and I were immediately filled with compassion toward our dog. We said, oh, poor Jetty, did you hurt yourself? We started to baby him, gave him extra pets, extra treats, made sure he was comfortable. After all, the little dog looked so distressed. However, later that same day, my siblings and I happened upon Jetty again, walking around without his limp. And we said to him, oh, Jetty, are you feeling all better? And you know what he did? As soon as he heard our voices, the back leg sprung right back into the limp position. Except there was a problem. It was the wrong leg. (laughs) He lifted his back left foot instead of the originally injured back right foot. Well, you can imagine we did not feel the same compassion for Jetty the second time as we did the first time. Rather, we marveled at the selfish lesson that our little dog learned in his brain. Instead of learning the lesson that he should have learned, that his owners truly care about him, so maybe in return he should become a more loyal and well-behaved dog, Jetty learned that he could manipulate his owners into giving him what he wanted if he simply pretended to be injured and pretended to be in distress. But that was the wrong lesson to learn. As proved when his owner's compassion evaporated, when Jetty's efforts to manipulate them were exposed for what they were. Now Jetty was just a dog. We might excuse his learning the wrong lesson in in the face of compassion. But what about people? What about people with God? Is it possible for people in selfish pride, to learn the wrong lesson from God's acts of mercy? Instead of, after receiving undeserved kindness from God, instead of worshiping God in true repentance and faith for who he has demonstrated himself to be, a person when actually trying to manipulate God, to force God to continually give them what they really want, which isn't God, but some of the things of this world. In our next passage in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous sign miracles, a miracle born from compassion and demonstrating Jesus' divine power and messianic authority, yet it's a miracle that for most of its witnesses, it led to the wrong lesson being learned. Our author John tells us about this miracle so that we we might not be like the original misunderstanding crowd. But might learn the true lesson taught by the miracle, even so that we will believe in Jesus and you find eternal life in Him and not in the gifts that He can give us. Please open your Bibles to John 6. John 6, we're looking at verses 1 to 15 today. The sermon title is Jesus Feeds a Massive Crowd. Jesus Feeds a Massive Crowd. John 6, 1 to 15 is on page 1065, if you're using the Bibles that we've provided. Few bibles let's read the passage john 6 1 to 15 after these things jesus went away to the other side of the sea of galilee or tiberias a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick then jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples now the passover the feast of the jews was near Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The account that we just read is of the biggest miracle Jesus ever did. Yes, Jesus did other more powerful, more poignant miracles besides this one, like in raising Lazarus from the dead or certainly raising himself from the dead. But in terms of the largest miracle the miracle directly affecting the most amount of people, this is it. Commonly, this miracle is called the feeding of the 5,000, since the text tells us specifically that there were 5,000 men present. But Matthew's gospel tells us that there were also women and children present too, and they also ate. So really, this is not a feeding of only 5,000, but perhaps as many as 20,000 or 25,000. And how many is 20,000? I know when we start talking about thousands of people, it's hard to visualize, but 20,000 is about the number of seats in an NBA basketball arena. Imagine all those seats filled. That's how many people were there, or maybe even more, with Jesus. This is a lot of people. And they not only were there, but they ate. And they not only ate, but the text says they ate as much as they wanted. So Jesus didn't just provide food for these people. He provided an all-you-can-eat feast. And then notice, there was plenty of food left over, too. So, this is a huge miracle. No wonder that this miracle is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels, apart from Jesus' resurrection. You see it also in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9. Clearly, the miracle made a significant impression upon the people and upon Jesus' disciples who were there. Yet, as we can tell from our reading all the way down to verse 15, even this great sign miracle is significantly misunderstood. If you just read down to verse 14, we might think that the crowd witnessing the miracle, it grasps the proper lesson and came to the proper conclusion that Jesus is the long-awaited prophet and Messiah. But verse 15 reveals that Jesus knew The Jews didn't understand the sign and that he could not go along with their seemingly pious plan to install him right then and there as their Messiah King. Really, to understand the significance of the sign of Jesus feeding this massive crowd, we cannot simply look at verses 1 to 15. For the narrative is immediately tied to the explanatory discourse that comes later in this chapter. We read part of that earlier in our service today. Actually, John 5 and John 6 parallel each other significantly when it comes to their structure and even to the events that occur. In John 5, we had a sign miracle followed by an extended speech from Jesus explaining the true significance of that sign. And notably, that explanation was ultimately rejected by the Jews. They hated Jesus for what he claimed on the basis of that sign. We have basically the same setup here in John 6. We have a sign, we have Jesus' later explanation of that sign, and then we have the Jews rejecting Jesus on the basis of that explanation. Why does John show us these two situations that are so similar based on two miracles back to back? Well, this is part of John showing us the Jewish nation turning against Jesus, turning in opposition to Jesus, despite his miracle ministry. Remember, in John 1-4... We had Jesus presented as the Son of God to Israel, and Israel didn't quite know what to make of Jesus' presentation to them in the beginning. But starting in John 5, and it's going to extend all the way to John 12, the Jews are going to increasingly reject Jesus. They're going to say, now we know what you're really about. We don't want you. In John 5, we saw it begin to happen to Jesus in Judea. Jesus had gone south to attend one of the feasts in Jerusalem, one of the religious feasts, and he was rejected there. But now we see the rejection happening in the north, in Galilee, in Jesus' home region. The Jews are turning against him there too. The Jews love Jesus' miracles. They can't get enough of them. But increasingly they cannot stomach the teaching that goes along with the miracles, teaching that proclaims Jesus to be the Son of God and that eternal life is only in him. considering then the fuller context of this miracle, we can summarize John's main idea here in this way. In John 6, 1 15, John presents the sign miracle of Jesus feeding the massive crowd so that you will not come to Jesus to fulfill your agenda for temporal blessing, but instead come to find eternal life in him. John wants you to see by this sign miracle that you, will, that you should not come to Jesus to fulfill your own agenda for temporal blessing, just prosperity in this world, but instead find eternal life in Jesus himself. The narrative is pretty straightforward. We can describe the unfolding events under four main headings, and those would be the points of my sermon outline. Now, let's look at those as we follow the verses more closely. The first heading covers verses one to four, in which we see, number one, A massive expectant crowd. A massive expectant crowd. Look at verse 1 again. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. (coughs) Excuse me. Now notice that first phrase. After these things. What are these things? Well, they would be that what was just mentioned in the book of John. The events in Jerusalem reported in John 5. Remember, Jesus healed a sick man on the Sabbath, and then he used that occasion to declare his own divine sonship to the Jews. After the, those things, we get what's coming next. But how long after those things? Well, we don't know. The phrase is vague enough that it could be a short time or a long time. Likely, the events in chapter 6, they take place six to 12 months after the events of chapter 5. A feast was mentioned in Jerusalem. Maybe it was the Feast of Booths. Maybe it was Passover. We have Passover coming up again soon, according to John 6. So this is six to 12 months later. This means that Jesus has been ministering in the north for a while, in the region of Galilee. In fact, if we bring in some information from the other gospel accounts on this feeding of the 5,000, we learn that... (coughs) Right before this, excuse me, right before this instance, Jesus has received word that John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jesus' twelve disciples have also just returned from ministering around Israel in Jesus' power and name. They've likely gathered again in Jesus' main base of ministry, which is the town of Capernaum, that bustling town on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. But now the rest of verse 1 says that here in John, says that Jesus and his disciples go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the northeast side, a more rural and empty area. Why journey to the other side? Why go to a desolate place? Well, it's for a kind of ministry retreat. Jesus has been affected by John the Baptist's death, and he and his disciples are exhausted from the ministry they've done lately. Jesus knows that he and his disciples could use a break to recharge for further ministry. So he takes his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Those are interchangeable terms. But, verse 2, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Hmm. Despite Jesus' efforts to get away for a short while, a large crowd, thousands of people, keep coming after Jesus to seek him out. Apparently, people saw Jesus get into a boat with his disciples, and they noticed the direction in which he was going. And so they tried to meet him there. People trudged along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to where they thought Jesus would land. And why are they following Jesus? It's because they love him. They believe in him. They can't get enough of his teaching. Well, verse 2 says, Because the signs which which he was performing on those who were sick John tells us the people are impressed by Jesus' signs, especially his healing miracles. And they are impressive. They want to see more, especially on behalf of their friends and relatives who are still sick. According to the other Gospels, the people aren't just traveling by themselves to see Jesus, but they're bringing their sick. They're bringing people to be healed by Jesus too. Now, is it good to seek after Jesus because of his healing signs? Kind of. After all, what have we seen so far in this gospel? It's true that Jesus' miracles, his signs, they are meant to point people to who Jesus really is so that they will believe in him. Jesus said that in John 5:36, The works that I do, they are the Father's testimony on my behalf so that you will believe. But all too often, the Jews stop short of full belief in Jesus as their real Lord and Savior, but they embrace him only as a miracle worker. They have a lot of enthusiasm for his miracles. They believe in him to that degree, but they don't believe in him in a saving way. John 2, 23 to 25 was a sobering example of this. This was when Jesus began his ministry in Jerusalem at Passover. It says, John 2, 23 to 25, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Great! Well, rest of the verse. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. They believed, but it wasn't saving, saving faith. They stopped short at just the miracles. Uh, is the crowd doing the same thing here? Hmm. Well, while the people are on their way, verse 3 tells us where Jesus settles down. Verse 3 Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, on what mountain or hill did Jesus set up with his disciples? I can't say for sure. It could have gone as far as the Golan Heights, which are in the northeast of Israel, but more likely he stayed closer to the sea, since he and his disciples are going to be using the sea again shortly. Now, the Sea of Galilee has a number of hills and mountains all around it because the sea is actually very low itself. It's 700 feet below sea level. So if you're sitting on the Sea of Galilee, you can actually see hills and mountains basically all around you. It's possible that Jesus, it's actually quite likely, that Jesus found a hillside with a U-shaped bend in it. And if he sets himself up in this bend, then he's basically created a natural amphitheater. So, when people are there with him, he can speak to them. He can speak to even thousands of them, and they can all hear him. This is likely where Jesus sets up, though we don't know what part, what particular hill it was. Well, the crowds are about to show up. But before they do, John gives us one more background detail in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Why is that detail mentioned? Well, this could simply be an eyewitness time detail that's part of establishing historical authenticity. After all, this was a real miracle, part of a real event that happened with real people in a real time. And it happened to be a day close to the celebration of the Jewish Passover, which is prescribed in the Law of Moses. Okay. But there's probably more to why John mentions this detail. For one thing, the timing of the Passover explains why the people were in a heightened state of messianic expectation even ready to proclaim a new king in verse 15. Why would that be? Well, as one commentator of the passage notes, Passover was for the Jews a bit like the 4th of July is for us. It's basically a commemoration of the date of establishment of the Israelite nation. How appropriate would it be then in this kind of patriotic day for God to reveal his promised Messiah and have him set up his kingdom? So the Jews are extra ready for their Messiah at Passover. Something else significant, though, about the mentioning of Passover is that it means that more prominent in people's minds is the wilderness experience and the one who led them through it. not talking about God. I'm talking about the man who led them through it, who led Israel through the wilderness. Why, was Moses that great, that special prophet of God? And what was one thing that Moses provided the people with while they traveled through a desolate place? Food. It was through Moses it was really God, as Jesus explains later, but it was through Moses the Jews remembered that Israel was fed that bread from heaven, the manna, and they were even given quail. So as the people journeyed to Jesus and his disciples, and this is more out-of-the-way place, kind of like the wilderness? If they suddenly get a whole bunch of food, you know what they're going to be thinking about? They're going to be thinking about Moses. They're going to be thinking about that manna in the wilderness. Because after all, the Passover of of the Jews is near. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when he notices this massive crowd crashing his ministry retreat with... His disciples. We go to our second heading now, covering verses 5 to 9. Number two. We discover an impossible food problem. An impossible food problem. Let's reread now verses 5 and 6. Pardon me. It says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Now, because it's not important for John's purpose here, John doesn't mention that when Jesus sees the crowd showing up, Jesus is moved in kindness to spend the rest of the day ministering to the people. Despite his plans for downtime with his disciples, and those were good plans, the disciples and Jesus could really have used that. Jesus changes course. He decides he's going to teach the people and miraculously heal many of their sick for pretty much the rest of the day. What a kind Lord. But as the day draws to a close, the disciples get Jesus' attention. They say, hey, Jesus, don't you think we should send the people away to go to the villages and buy food? (coughs) We're in a desolate place. There's no food here for them. Send them away. But Jesus... As we see here directly in John, he's not interested in sending the crowds away. Not yet. Rather, in compassion, he suggests to his disciples that they should provide food for the crowd. Jesus and the disciples will feed these people. And he asks Philip, where could we buy bread to feed these 20,000, 25,000 people? Now, why ask Philip? We actually haven't seen Philip featured in the narrative since... Andrew called him back in John 1. Why does Philip suddenly get name-dropped here? And eh, we can't say for sure. But perhaps Jesus asks Philip because Philip, as we're told pretty much every time he appears in the narrative, he is from the nearby town of Bethsaida. So he knows the area. If anyone knew where someone could buy bread or find bread in this area, well, Philip would know. But Jesus' question to Philip is only half-serious. Jesus isn't really intending to buy bread, but he's testing Philip. What would Philip think of Jesus' expressed intent to feed all these people? Would Philip conclude that the idea is impossible? Or would Philip manifest faith in his rabbi, the son of God? Well, we see Philip's reply in verse 7. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Does Philip pass the test? No. Because forgetting who Jesus actually is, Philip plainly indicates that feeding this many people at this point in the day is impossible. Philip's quick number crunch reveals that 200 denarii worth of bread, or that's about eight months' wages for a day laborer, it wouldn't be enough to give just everybody there a bite. Let alone satisfy them. By the way, I'm not exactly sure what eight months' wages of a day labor is equivalent to today, but if you just calculate minimum wage in the United States right now, eight months' wages is about $10,000. And this is to provide a single meal for this crowd of people. Do you imagine spending $10,000 on a meal? That's an expensive dinner. That's because it's so many people. Well, probably Jesus' group doesn't have $10,000, doesn't have 200 denarii, eight months' wages. But even if they did, where would they find that much bread, even to buy it? And if they somehow did find bread, well, it still wouldn't do any good because you're only just giving everybody a tiny piece of food. Tiny piece of bread, that won't satisfy them. So in short, Philip expresses that Jesus' intent to feed the people is impossible. impossible. It's a nice sentiment, Jesus, but we just can't do it. Sorry. Philip's friend Andrew chimes in in verses 8 and 9. He has some additional information that he thinks Jesus should know. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Here's another testimony, basically declaring the goal of feeding the crowd to be impossible. You might be wondering, where did Andrew find this lad, and why is he stealing his food? Well, we don't get the full story here. But Mark mentions in his accounts of this miracle that Jesus specifically told his disciples to find out how much food they already had. And it's there, like here, that... Jesus learns, oh, there's a lad here who has these loaves and fish. So this lad, then, probably was a servant boy or a young man who was traveling with Jesus' group of disciples. This wasn't some random boy in the crowd, probably. This is somebody, part of Jesus' group, who had some provisions for the disciples, had some still left. He's carrying food, but it's not that much. And when you read barley loaves here, think disc-shaped bread cakes, so kind of flat, disc-shaped with a hole in the middle so that you could tear off pieces of it. The Jews didn't cut bread. They just tore it off. So you've got five of these bread cakes, and then you have these fish, and these would have been small pickled fish that kind of serves as a side dish to the main meal of bread. By the way, barley bread was considered poor people food. If you were well-to-do, you ate wheat bread. But we've got barley bread here. Now, on the surface, this discovery of bread and fish seems helpful. Hey, we don't have zero food. Look, we've got five loaves and two fish. We're not stuck at square one. But even Andrew asks rhetorically, but what are these for so many people? Translation, this doesn't really change the situation in a significant way. Feeding the people is still impossible. I mean, this takeout dinner wouldn't even feed the 12 disciples, let alone 20,000 people. So by presenting the testimonies of Philip and Andrew, John establishes for us, just as those disciples established for Jesus, that naturally speaking, feeding this crowd is impossible. You can't do it. But do not the scriptures say, what is impossible with man is possible with God? We come now to the third section of the narrative in verses 10 to 13, where we see number three, the miraculous satisfying feast. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. You have to love the confidence of our Lord Jesus, right? He's not disturbed at all by the impossibility of this situation or the lack of faith of his disciples. Jesus simply has the disciples tell the people to sit down, literally to recline, which I think is interesting. Reclining for a meal, that's the preferred posture of the Jews. That means it's going to be a relaxing dinner. Jesus says, have the people recline. And it turns out they're reclining, uh, laying down, propping yourself up on one arm. It wasn't uncomfortable in that environment because we're told there's much grass in the place. This is a nice place for a reclining picnic, even though there's not food there. I mean, at least it's comfortable. So we've got these 5,000 men, probably plus another 15 to 20,000 women and children, that are being organized into groups and now reclining on the mountainside before Jesus. And Jesus then does what is customary for any rabbi or head of a Jewish household to do when entertaining guests for a meal. He offers a prayer of thanks and blessing to God. The typical prayer for the period went as follows. It's short. Blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the universe, who has caused bread to spring out of the earth. To which the rest of the participants at such a prayer would respond, Amen. Jesus prays something like this. And verse 11 says, Jesus, no doubt via his disciples, then distributed the bread and the fish to those who were reclining as much as they wanted. And I'm sure the people wanted a lot. They had worked up quite an appetite hoofing it all the way to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, then spending all day with Jesus. They were hungry at dinner time. And so they get to chowing down some nice bread and fish. And apparently it's a lot. How is Jesus able to distribute so much? We're not told the precise mechanism. But whatever Jesus did, it apparently wasn't flashy. It's not like his hands started glowing, heaven opened up, all these lights, there's sounds, there's music, there's Jesus saying some special formula words, abracadabra. No, none of that. Apparently, though, somehow, between leaving Jesus' hands and showing up before the people, the food, much food miraculously appeared and multiplied so that the people could eat as much as they want. And Jesus makes sure that people don't miss that Jesus is doing a sign because we read in verses 12 to 13, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, notice the first part of verse 12 says that the people were filled, they were satiated, they had eaten, and they were fully satisfied. And then Jesus commands the disciples to gather up the meals leftovers. And why does he do that? Well, it could be partly to be responsible, not waste any food. That's something that a Jewish host would typically do. But more importantly, gathering up the fragments would make clear to everyone what just happened. This was no illusion. This wasn't like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Where did the food come from? Did we even eat it? This is going to become clear. as the disciples go, and they gather up what is left of each tear and share loaf And what's left of the fish? The other Gospels mention that. And when they do, the disciples fill 12 baskets. 12 baskets with the leftovers. And notice, John is emphatic in verse 15 that these leftovers, they came from the original food. They came from the five loaves and the two fish. Nobody else brought out secret stores of food. This wasn't a big potluck that everybody's just like, oh, look, that kid is sharing his lunch. Let me get my food out too. That is not what happened here. As we can tell from verse 13, it was from the five barley loaves. And again, the other gospels mention the two fish also. It was from the original food that the disciples gathered in the end 12 baskets full of leftovers. And this is after 20,000 people or so ate as much as they wanted. Where did all that food come from? Why are there 12 baskets left? It's clear to everyone now. Jesus has just performed a miracle. This is the powerful compassion of the Son of Man, Son of God, doing like he did in the beginning, creating out of nothing, multiplying food to meet the needs of the crowd. Did the crowd get this? And if so, what did it cause them to do? We'll look at verse 14. As we come to our last heading, it uh, covers verses 14 and 15. Number four, we see, finally, the disappointing, unbelieving conclusion. The Disappointing, unbelieving conclusion. Verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. Now first glance, verse 14, sounds like wonderful news. This was exactly for what Jesus was hoping. The people realized that Jesus had performed a sign, a miraculous act, pointing to his true identity, and they conclude: he is definitely the special prophet foretold by Moses. Even in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, where God said to Moses, there, let me quote those verses for you, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's what God said to Moses. Jesus is a prophet like Moses, and could it be any more obvious to the crowd? Moses was God's chosen leader, miraculously fed the people in the wilderness. Now Jesus, look, is doing the same thing as Moses. He's God's chosen leader. He just miraculously fed us in this otherwise barren place they conclude he's the prophet. He's even the Messiah. Because verse 15 says that the people were even ready to make Jesus king. So they didn't just see him as the promised prophet. Jews at that time, some of them were like, oh yeah, there's the prophet, and then there's the Messiah. They're not the same. But other Jews, they kind of saw it being together, which is actually the truth according to the scripture. Jesus is the promised prophet and the promised king. Apparently, some of the Jews were making that same conclusion. They were concluding, correctly in part who jesus is so that's perfect right the people get it the sign worked. jesus they believe in you aren't you pleased verse 15 so jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone Does that surprise you? Well, verse 15 shows us there's more to the story than what was reported in verse 14. See, Jesus perceives something, literally knows something about this enthusiastic crowd. Now, how does he know? Is he just overhearing their conversations? Is he just a very observant person? Possibly, but we've seen already multiple times in the Gospel of John, Jesus has supernatural knowledge. He doesn't have to overhear a conversation. He just knows all men. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're intending. What does Jesus know about this well-fed, sign witnessing, newly believing group of Jews? Verse 15 says, He knew they were about to come and seize Jesus so they might make him king. That's a very revealing statement, isn't it? What does it reveal about these Galilean Jews? it reveals that the people don't ultimately care what Jesus' agenda is or even what God's agenda is for Jesus. What they care about is what they can make Jesus do for them, how Jesus can serve their own agenda. You see, they're learning a lesson from what Jesus just did, but it's the wrong lesson. Jesus has just shown them, they think, what life under his rule will be like. Abundant food, freedom from disease, and come on, look at this powerful miracle. This guy can overcome the Romans. Jesus, in short, can offer the prosperity and the power that the Jews have been wanting for centuries. So what are we waiting for, they say? Let's make this guy our king. And if he doesn't want to be king, well, tough. Because obviously this is what God would want for us. He would want to bless us because we're his holy people. Now the intention of the crowd is flattering in a way. And if Jesus were seeking the approval of men, if he were seeking an earthly kingdom right then and there, he would not dissuade the Jews from their course. Jesus told the Judeans in John 5.41, I do not receive the glory of men. He also told them, I have come in my Father's name. I've come to do His will. Not your will. Not even my own will. So Jesus knows what He must do. He must walk away from this unbelieving crowd, ultimately unbelieving crowd, who are ready to make him king. The other Gospels tell us that after this miracle, Jesus dismisses the crowds. He sends his disciples to sail across the lake without him, and he withdraws alone to the mountain to pray to his God. Kind of a disappointing conclusion, isn't it? (coughs) Certainly the people were disappointed. No doubt Jesus was disappointed. And you could say, even we readers are disappointed. This wasn't the conclusion we were looking for. And yet it is a very instructive conclusion. Because as I said to you at the beginning, we see clearly that we are not to be like the overzealous crowd whose mind was set on earthly things rather than the things of God. Jesus is going to say more to the crowds later about this miracle he performed and why he didn't go along with their efforts to make him king. Particularly insightful are the statements that we see in John 6:27 and John 6:35. I'll just read those to you. We'll say much more about them later. John 6:27. Jesus tells the crowds when they catch up with him, "Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you." For on him the Father God has set his seal. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is what the miracle is really about. This isn't Jesus proving to you that he's about making your life comfortable. He'll give you the food that you want, He will heal all your diseases. He'll deliver you from all your problems. He'll make life easy for you. No, that's the wrong lesson. That's not what Jesus was saying with that miracle. Rather, he was saying, look at how I'm able to provide this miraculous bread for you. I did this by the power and approval of God, but you know what? I can give you much better bread than this. You know what that bread is? It's me. I'm the bread you should be looking for because I will actually satisfy you. I'll be the bread that no matter how many pieces you tear off, there's more. There's more to enjoy. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. Why seek after the bread that perishes? Why seek after the little comforts and blessings and provisions of this world with all your heart and might when that's ultimately going to fail? I will never fail. I am life and myself. Come to me. Feed on me. And you will be saved. That's what this is really about. The crowd doesn't see it yet. And when Jesus explains it to the crowd, they don't like it. Which is going to reveal something about their hearts despite what they say, despite what these religious, zealous, expectant of the Messiah Jews are demonstrating outwardly, they don't really love God. They don't really want God. They want what God can give them. What about you? We've got to bring this to a personal application, don't we? Brethren, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? It's because you think Jesus is the key to fulfilling your agenda in this world. Jesus will grant you health. He will grant you wealth. He will grant you success. He will deliver you from your problems. He will give you friends. He will give you a great marriage. He will give you perfectly obedient children. He will fulfill all your goals and dreams. Isn't that the Jesus who's preached in many places? Jesus is all about you and what you want. Is that why you are a Christian? Or is it because you recognize that Jesus, just as he declares... He is life in Himself. And that you want to follow His agenda, whatever it is for your life. Because that means you can have Him. And Jesus has already told you what part of that agenda includes trials, persecution, rejection, suffering. Why would anybody choose that? Jesus is true bread. Yes, Jesus, I'll take the suffering. I'll accept that I'm not going to be able to fulfill my dreams in my life because I'm giving all those up. Jesus, if you do fulfill some of those things, great. But if not, that's also great because I have you. You have the words of eternal life. You have the living water. You are the true bread. So if you don't fulfill my agenda, that's perfectly okay. Is that you? Is that what your heart testifies? Because it's only those, brethren, who come after Jesus for Jesus who really get Jesus. Everyone else who comes after Jesus for something else, they only get the Jesus of their imagination. They don't really have God. God has withdrawn from them. as Jesus has withdrawn from the crowds. And it will be a rude awakening for many of those religious people when they meet the Lord Jesus. As Jesus testifies elsewhere, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but I will say to them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You never were my true disciple. It should have been obvious to you. You believed in a different Jesus. You didn't want me. You wanted what you thought that I would give you. The terrible irony of everyone who comes to Jesus to be their genie, to give them what they really want in this world, is that they'll never be satisfied. Ultimately, this crowd is going to prove that they just want Jesus' food. But you know what? They're always going to want more and they're never going to have enough. It's the same with whatever it is that you want Jesus to give you instead of him. It'll never be enough. Worse, it'll keep you away from the real Jesus. It'll keep you away from eternal life. Which Jesus do you really want? Do you want the fake Jesus or do you want the real Jesus? you want the Jesus who satisfies and actually saves Do you want the Jesus that just soothes your lusts? Feel good temporarily. It won't feel good in the end. If you've been pursuing the fake Jesus, it's time to repent. Because the real Jesus is speaking to you right now from his word. He's saying, don't be like this foolish, unbelieving crowd who learned the wrong lesson." Learn the true lesson and come to the true Jesus. I will satisfy you. I will save you. But you've got to give up your own agenda. You've got to give up your sin. You've got to give up your purposes for your life. You've got to say, Jesus, take it all. Whatever you want for me in my life, that's what I want. Because you're the Lord, you are life. You are the true treasure. So whatever whatever it costs me to have you, I'm willing. I'm willing to give because I know that you will never fail. Come pursue the true Jesus today. Come feed on the true Jesus and feed on him more. That's what Jesus is also inviting each one of you to do today. Say, get to know me more. Walk with me more. That distracting thing you have in your life that's keeping me away from you, get rid of that so that you can enjoy true food. That sin that you keep going back to for comfort, get rid of that. That's food that perishes. That's actually poisonous food. But I'm the true food. I will satisfy you. Whatever's keeping you away from the true Jesus this morning, give it up because Jesus freely offers himself to you as the bread of life the true bread from heaven. Now, we'll have more to say about this miracle and the true interpretation of it in the coming weeks. But next time we're back in John, we have a little aside, a little bonus miracle. We just looked at the fourth sign in the Gospel of John, the fifth sign with Jesus walking on the water. We'll look at that together next time. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, it is interesting how you have made us as humans. You are the creator. You declare that in your word, we know it to be true. Nothing came into being that didn't come into being through you. And one thing that's so evident about the way you've made humans is that we are creatures who eat. We eat. From the beginning, we've needed to eat. It's part of enjoying life it's part of sustaining life and yet with the fall which ironically also involved food we got away from what is true food declaring we knew better we said god i don't need your food i want to get my own food i'm going to get the food that's wise and tasty to my own preferences But where did that get us? It got us death. It brought the curse. It brought vanity into this world. Vapor. Everything is vapor. Even food is vapor. We have to keep on eating. But we're never fully satisfied until we die. Because even the food that sustains our lives, it doesn't sustain us forever. All those who eat physical food today, even those who amass Mountains of food and whatever other treasures are there in this world, they will still die because that food cannot sustain them eternally. So what is to be done? It is to repent and to come back to the God whose food we rejected in the beginning and say, no, God, you've had the true food all along. I was wicked and foolish to reject it. But Lord, you say to anyone who comes to me, who comes for this food which I freely offer, they can have it. They can receive it. And it will forever save. It will even deliver a person from death. This is food that brings about resurrection. We've never heard of such food in this world. Until Jesus declared it. Jesus says, I'm the food that grants eternal life. Jesus, you said that to us. So God, I pray that would be the conviction of every person in this room and the persons listening online as well, that we would say, I'm done with the food that perishes. Seeking after that is my ultimate good. I want the true food. And you're not just food who gives life, but like you designed food to be in the beginning, you are enjoyable food. You are satisfying food. The psalmist does declare correctly when he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus, you are sweet. You are, spiritually speaking, delicious to our taste. But Lord, when we get distracted with fast food, poisonous, sinful food, sometimes we think, Nah, I don't think I really want to feed on Jesus anymore. That's not satisfying. God, deliver us out of that broken kind of thinking. Jesus, you are not only the food that gives life. You are the food that truly satisfies. I pray, God, that you would grant the gift of faith to everyone here today to say, I believe that. And I'm going to follow Jesus like I believe that because I do. Lord, be pleased to glorify yourself in this way.